Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. In our second episode during Black History Month, I chat with another historian of Africa, Jennifer Tappan. Her research focuses on the history of medicine and health. This week, we talk about her book, The Riddle of Malnutrition, The Long Arc of Biomedical and Public Health Interventions in Uganda. We also talk about a new project she started on the history of yellow fever in Africa. Jennifer received her PhD from Columbia University in 2010 and is now Associate Professor of African History at Portland State University in Oregon here in the United States. Apologies in advance for a few brief quiet spots we chatted over Skype during a snowstorm, so the connection wasn't perfect. It's for this reason that I only share some of the book recommendations Jennifer makes at the end of our chat. But don't worry, we'll have a complete list of her recommendations up on our website, ufahamuafrica.com, next week. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa during Black History Month. We're really excited to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. It's a real honor for me to be part of the conversation. Now, can you share with our listeners how you came to be interested in studying African history? Sure, of course. I actually, as a young person, I thought that I hated history, hmm. um, mainly because I thought that history was you know, solely about memorizing dates and facts about famous battles and that kind of thing. Um, and then when I was in high school, uh, I learned about the civil rights movement, and I learned that history could actually be uh, more about struggles for social justice. And then I, that's when I became interested in history um, more broadly. And I became to, came to see it as an indispensable tool for understanding, you know, how the world um, has become the way that it is today. Um, and I became really passionate about African history while I was in college and participated in a study abroad program to East Africa. And, you know, there are many parts of that trip that um, really deepened my investment in studying African history. There was a, um, a historian from the University of Nairobi that participated in that program. Um, that, that was uh, a big part of my decision to become an Africanist. But I think I was also really struck many of the people that I met uh, during that trip and the way that history really mattered still to them in their lives um, and in the work that they did. You know, that was really what crystallized my passion for the African past. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because I want to talk about your book, The Riddle of Malnutrition, The Long Arc of Biomedical and Public Health Interventions in Uganda. As anyone who reads The Monkey Cage knows, your book was my favorite in last year's African Politics Summer Reading Spectacular. Now, even though I don't study Uganda, nor do I study malnutrition, I saw a lot of parallels in the pitfalls of other health interventions in the African countries that I have studied. Now, what main takeaways do you hope readers will have after reading your book? Well, first I'll say I'm still humbled that you, uh, you know, saw my, my book as one of your favorites. Um, that really is a, it's, it's still humbling to me. Um, so my book looks at efforts to understand, treat, and then prevent a form of childhood malnutrition that we now know today as severe acute malnutrition. And initially, these efforts, early efforts to understand uh, the condition led to dangerous experimentation on dying children and um, did little to instill confidence in medical treatment and care. And I think that's one of the things that we learned from the early history of nutrition uh, work in Uganda. Early efforts to prevent the condition sought to 
do so in the way that many health initiatives are uh, approached through a, a magic bullet, um, sort of technological. And that, in this case, ended up doing far more harm than good. I think one of the main takeaways that I hope people get from my book was that out of this kind of longer history of failure, and in fact, um, what I would think of as like opening with this failure, physicians and scientists who were working in Uganda decided to try a, an entirely new approach. And this decision to kind of shift gears led to the development or the opening of Africa's first nutrition rehabilitation program. And I think the main takeaway for me about this program itself was that it built on, it explicitly built on and was designed to build on the strong foundations of medical training and expertise in Uganda. It was able to build on and uh, and strengthen the, the national health system itself. Um, and it was designed to become, and it did become a Ugandan program, which means that it became a program that could respond to the shifting needs of Ugandan people. And, and it came to have meaning uh, to people in Uganda. And for this reason, it was able to kind of endure. And this is in sharp contrast to uh, a great deal of the global health programming and the initiatives that we have seen and continue to see, which are typically designed to be time limited. Um, so I think the explicit effort to build on the national health system and medical training and expertise and the way in which that translated into positive health outcomes um, are among the main takeaways that I, that I hope people um, glean from, from my work. And what would you say was the most surprising or interesting thing that you learned during the course of your research? So it's, it's hard for me to point to just one surprising thing that I learned. Um, there, there are a couple of main uh, components of this research that more or less shocked me. Um, I think the first is that um, a book that I did looked at the impact of the program in this one region surrounding a rural health center. And this rural health center um, in the 1960s became the first rural satellite of the nutrition rehabilitation program. But this was also an area that um, became of the violence and the political upheaval around um, Idi Amin's dictatorship, both before and after Idi Amin's dictatorship. So when I first uh, began to look at this rural health center and the, the impact the program had there, I, had, I, I didn't expect it to have had much of an impact because I knew about um, this long period of violence. But essentially, I couldn't have been more wrong. In, in fact, I found that the program became a part of the lives of the people in this area, and it, it was able to do that despite um, this period, this long period of turmoil, because the people themselves have kept the program alive. Um, a midwife who worked at the health center devoted her entire life to teaching people the principles of the program, and then the people that I spoke with. Um, you know, told me that they then passed that information down to their children and to their grandchildren, um, and that they have really kept made this a part of their living memory and, and their daily lives. There are two other things that briefly I'll say were also shocking to me about this research. The second one was I found that the program was able to endure and even expand um, during the the during Amin's uh, dictatorship, which is not again what what one would expect. But that it actually has struggled most um, in the face of the economic austerity measures associated with uh, structural adjustment, with the shift in global health funding priorities, um, which understandably shifted towards HIV and AIDS, but that these were have actually been the greatest obstacle. Um, and then the last thing I would say is I was incredibly shocked very early in this research to find that um, early efforts to prevent the condition centered on the distribution of dried skim milk. 
um, for a variety of different reasons. And this led to an encouragement in bottle feeding. So I knew in advance of this research that um, Nestle uh, and other infant formula companies had, had been involved in encouraging bottle feeding with disastrous impacts on childhood malnutrition. I had no idea that medical professionals who were working to prevent uh, childhood malnutrition had also contributed to uh, a rise in bottle feeding in places like Uganda. Hmm. Now, one of the methods that you used in the research for your book was oral history interviews, including around this area, this rural um, health area that you that you talked about earlier. Can you share a bit more about that with our listeners, um, kind of describing what oral history interviews are and what made you decide to use that technique and how you picked the people who would serve as your research participants? Sure. Um Well, there's a lot that I could say about um, oral history interviews as a a method. Um, I think for now, what I would say is that um, they, they, you know, they typically involve, you know, sitting down with people and listening to the stories that they have to tell about their lives. Um, And and I will say that this is one of my favorite parts of the work that I do. Having the opportunity to sit with elderly people um, and, you know, kind of for extended periods of time to ask them questions about what they remember and how they're um, shed light on, you know, the history that, that I'm investigating is without question the, my favorite part of the work that I do. And for this book, there were a number of um, elderly people that I met with on a number of occasions. So I, I really got to know some of these people fairly well. But... This is really a crucial part of the work that I did for this project, but also African history more broadly, um, because a large component of the written record that historians typically work with um, tends to reflect the perspectives of colonial officials and ruling elites. Um, Interviews are then really crucial if one wants to incorporate diverse perspectives. So it's common and, and to some extent expected um, that if there are people who are still alive, who um, remember uh, the history that you are investigating, that you make every effort to um, interview those people and incorporate um, their perspectives into your analysis. And this was definitely the case for me. The uh, um, the published and archival record really only told a, a, a particular part of the story. There was only a small sliver of the story that I could glean from the written materials that were available to me. So to understand the perspectives and experiences of the people who were, for instance, impacted by the Nutrition Rehabilitation Program, I really had to conduct interviews. And the interviews that I conducted really fell into two categories. So I interviewed um, Ugandan and expatriate physicians and scientists, uh, and they furnished crucial information about the medical work in Uganda. But I also interviewed people who lived in this the area surrounding this rural health center. And I selected them in two ways. So a number of the people that I initially interviewed, I knew and had been participants in the program and, and had been um, kind of more highly involved interviewed um, a random selection of women and men, and I selected them really by just walking uh, along the paths and roads in the area surrounding the health center, um, you know, with my translator and and just interviewing anyone who was willing to answer um, my, my questions and share their time with and I have to say, um, most people were um, highly willing. They were, they were um, very generous with their time and with, with their memories of their lives. So what are you working on now? Do you have a new research project that you're that you're collecting information for? Yes, um, I am working on um, a history of yellow fever in Africa. 
And I actually, when I began this project with Nail Fever, I thought I was going to be doing something very different from what I'm doing now. Um, but uh, after doing a little preliminary research, I found much to my shock that very little work has been done on the history of yellow fever in Africa. Um, and part of what's shocking about that is that there is an extensive historical scholarship on fever in the Americas. And, um, you know, part of what also makes that uh, fairly remarkable is that uh, yellow fever appears to have come from Africa. And today, African people bear the greatest burden of yellow fever morbidity and mortality. Um, and a significant uh, amount of scientific work done on yellow fever in Africa in the colonial and post-colonial period. So there's a, there's a lot of material um, that I think warrants further investigation. Um, and at the moment, my work on yellow fever is focused on or appears to be moving towards questions around vaccines and immunity, as well as the way that we think about emerging diseases and the boundaries between endemic and epidemic disease. And is there a particular geographic area of the continent that you're examining? That is still um, somewhat open or, or up in the air. I have, there are a number of decisions that I need to make about um, how I'm going to shape this project. Mm-hmm. Um, at some level, to be honest, I think we do need a more continental understanding of a sort of a broader history of yellow fever. Mm-hmm. That was what I was looking for and didn't find, and I think um, might be something that I that I attempt to do. Ultimately, that's not the project, but kind of, I'm not sure if that's the book I want to write <laughs> or, or what I want to do on yellow fever. Um, it's certainly not how I envisioned my next project, but it is, it is a, an enormous gap in, mm-hmm. in our knowledge. And I think it has an impact actually on the way that we, um, like the World Health Organization approaches yellow fever um, today. Well, before we go, we normally ask our guests about books they're reading now or have read recently. Do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? So I did give this question some thought, and I decided um, to be completely honest. And if you like, I'll say more about why. Um, But I'm in the midst of teaching two brand new courses, and my teaching load is um, such that I, in all honesty, find it frequently a challenge to find time to do a lot of the reading that I would like to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the honest answer is that I have been doing a lot of reading connected to these two courses. So I'm teaching a course right now on imperialism. And so next week, for instance, we are, my students and I will be discussing um, Laura Briggs' excellent uh, book called Reproducing Empire. It's about the centrality of gender and reproductive politics in um, and U.S. imperialism in Puerto Rico. And then, we're, and we'll also be discussing Warwick Anderson's also fantastic work, Colonial Pathology, which also looks at U.S. imperialism and tropical medicine in the Philippines. And I think one of the better books that I've read, and not that recently, um, is Nancy Rose Hunt's A Nervous State, mm-hmm. um, which I actually would like to reread because um, I think it's a book that warrants a second look. And the last thing I will say along these lines is that, um, and plan to review before I teach my next course on global health, um, is a book called Doomed Intervention. <laughs> a lot about. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I I hear I hear one of the benefits I hear one of the benefits of reading doomed interventions is that it's short, Uh, so it doesn't take a lot of time. Also that makes it a book that one could adopt for a class. Right, right. I'm sure the author thought of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time this week and uh, and for sharing your um, your your experiences and in, in, uh, in, in working with African history and 
um, and about your exciting new project that you're working on now. It's a real honor to be um, featured on the podcast. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website, ufamuafrica.com. Find us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Government Department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kawia Aruna, Class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.